name is Mike Symanchuk. I'm the managing attorney at the California Innocence Project, and this is Stars Stripes Stories. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. This is a project that I desperately wanted to have on the podcast since I started it, and also the fact that we're in San Diego makes my work so much easier. It's a it's a beautiful city. It's with a lot of beautiful, nice people. I always say it's um, kind of like the friendly little brother of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I'd agree. I think it's uh, uh, much more beautiful, uh, less hectic, yes. Uh, yes, less traffic, yes, uh, as good if not better beaches. Uh, so I, I feel think like it's, it's more. It's a more civil place, you know. It's not as sketchy and and hectic. Yeah. So I think for working or probably raising a family as well, mm-hmm. San Diego is probably the place to be. Definitely. Yeah, I, I every I try to see. We play some of our matches like from tennis. We play it. We play against San Diego Christian University. So I actually get the chance to come here at least twice a year. And after the first time that we made it out here. I, fell in love with the city. I fell in love with Cali, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I still like Arizona, but I, I feel like San Diego is, is the place to be. Um, I, I've been here with my family, and they all love it. So, yeah, we mentioned work a little bit. Um, and you've been working as an attorney, as you said in the intro. How long have you been working as an attorney? I uh, took the bar, the bar exam in 2010 and uh, passed, mm-hmm. and I was sworn in in December of 2010. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I was hired on actually at the California Innocence Project on uh, January first of twenty eleven. So almost. So this is your first job actually, um, as an I, attorney basically. I had I had actually done a couple of trials. Uh, the the day I got my bar results, I started a trial. Right. And so I had done. I was doing a couple of odd ends, odd jobs with different lawyers around town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was my first. Uh, real steady long-term job and you've always wanted so the innocence project just to be clear it's a, it's a non-profit organization and we're going to dive into what the actual innocent project is a little bit later but it's a it's a non-profit organization it's it has a social cause right so is that was that always something you were interested uh into like helping others um working for a non-profit and all that kind of stuff actually i came to law school to prosecute white-collar crime that's, okay. what I, that's what I envisioned when I came to law school. I was in undergrad. I uh, studied finance and economics. Oh. And I was I was doing a lot of uh, research into uh, insider trading and in particular small cap stocks. So stocks that aren't getting as much attention as some of the right. larger cap stocks. And, uh, and really trying to understand how easy it was for people in the know to, to trade on inside information without ever getting caught. And so once I realized kind of from the, the research I was doing how easy it was, I decided that it was, it was probably best for me to go to, uh, to law school to... So that wasn't a potential career for you? No, and, well, I, you know, it's, that's what my thought was. And then I came to law yeah. school in the very first week that I was at school, I met an individual named Timothy Atkins. Okay. And Tim had spent 23 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He'd only been home for four months. I was 23 years old. So, so this guy had spent my whole yeah. life in prison for a crime wow. he didn't commit. And at the end of... What was your first reaction there? Like, I, I can imagine that must have been a shocking moment. Just a, a person hitting you with his individual stories. Hey, man, I spent 23 years in prison. Just that amount of time is ridiculous to me. And then on top of that, if it's falsely, like if he has been imprisoned falsely, that that's probably a shocking moment. 
It was definitely shocking. Yeah. It was, um, you know, I, but I think the most shocking thing from speaking to him was that at the conclusion of him talking, he said, right. well, I'm not the only one. In fact, there's thousands more just like me mm-hmm. who are still sitting in prison and need your help. And I think it was that call to action that really yeah. drew me into this work and kind of... I was about know. to ask, was that probably a, a trigger moment or like one really important moment in your life where you kind of like figured out, all right, I want to help these people? That definitely started to set the yeah. stage. So I, I immediately went to um, our my professor, my civil civil procedure professor later that week and, and spoke to him. He was, he's the co, he was the co-founder of the California Innocence Project. Okay. Um, had a conversation with him about how to get involved, and he said, oh, yeah, come to this information session in January, and then you can, you know, you can apply. And so I did that. And so I became a clinic student in the clinic mm-hmm. here at California Western School of Law. And I was a clinic student in 2008, in the 2000, 2008 to 2009, yeah. that academic year. Uh, I was assigned a dozen cases. I worked under uh, attorneys in the office mm-hmm. and developed some of those cases. Some of those I, I gained was, more experience probably as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like getting your feet wet basically in the in the whole attorney business. Yeah, and getting an understanding of how the uh, the project worked and how the criminal justice system worked and just how really just how insane the problem was. Mm-hmm. How many people were writing to to our organization. Um, and how many were claiming innocence and, and how many likely were, in fact, innocent. Yeah. So before we jump right into these cases, I obviously mm-hmm. want to talk about that. Could you give us a brief description of what the Innocent Project does? Because I feel like a lot of people still don't know what it is. Sure. Uh, so there's so there's actually a lot of uh, different innocence organizations around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very first innocence organization is an organization called Centurion Ministries, and it's based out of uh, New Jersey. Yeah. And they, the idea behind Centurion Ministries was to, for uh, retired lawyers to get together and volunteer their time to review cases where people were yeah. claiming factual innocence and were in prison. Uh, that started in the early, early to mid-80s. And then in 1992, the very first uh, Innocence Project uh, was started by two individuals, Barry Shack and Peter Neufeld okay. in New York. And their idea was actually to use DNA testing. Barry uh-huh. was familiar with DNA. Um, he actually was a, uh, a lawyer that worked on uh, the O.J. Simpson defense team mm-hmm. um, and used DNA in that case. And so their idea was to use DNA to prove ultimately that people were in prison wrongfully. Yeah. And so that was the very first one, first first uh, organization to use the term Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. From that started uh, a whole bunch of different Innocence Projects around the country. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we were actually the fourth Innocence Project to open, the California Innocence Project. Uh, but there's now... So one of the founding fathers, you could say that? I would say, yeah, I would okay. say that. really uh, cool. So there's now 66 innocence organizations around the world. They don't all use the Innocence Project name. Okay. Uh, but we're all... But the goal is the same. The goal is the same. We're all organized under what's called the Innocence Network. Okay. And uh, the goal ultimately is to get innocent people out of prison. Right. And to do it without charging them any money. Right. And in a lot of these organizations, the the project is based at or or includes or uses utilizes work by law students. Right. And so it'll be a clinic based at a law school where students are participating and assisting and reviewing cases and trying to figure out are these people innocent? And that's kind of so it's kind of a two way street. It's they're trying to get innocent people out of prison. Right. And and they're also learning about the system and how to be a better. Really effective way because you have that sort of win win situations where you can 
m- give the students an opportunity to actually work in a case. And I feel like every student wants to do a hands-on job, right? No one wants to just sit in a classroom and be like, uh, I don't know what's going on. But then on the other hand, like you're probably getting a lot of motivated young people that just want to work. And I think that's great. You mentioned a little bit, you talked a little bit about the numbers. How many people would you say are out there or in prison right now which are technically innocent? So conservative estimates suggest that it's it's a minimum of 4%. Right. Some of the bigger estimates are, are, are closer to 10%. So somewhere between 4 and 10%. And it's 10%. really hard to say. Like, it's it's really hard to judge, right? It's, it's fairly challenging, yeah. and, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of the cases are, are simply just he said, she said situations. There's not going to be DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people lie. Um, people, we get, we make right. mistakes. Right. So it's it's hard to ever know. And and also, what what happens is once somebody is released from prison, uh, the inquiry is kind of over, right? So once you get out on parole, let's say, yeah. like organizations aren't really out there. There's not organizations out there that are helping you try to prove your innocence once you're home because there's so many people that True. are asking for assistance True. that are in. And to give you some more uh, background on that, so. Just in the state of California, we've got about 110,000 people in prison. Let's call it 100,000 just mm-hmm. to make it a round number. Yeah. So if it's 10, 10%, if we're looking at some of the bigger estimates, that's 10,000 people in California alone that are in well, prison and innocent. And I even think, if it's on the lower end, 4,000 people is still a big number. I think it's always really interesting if we're looking at polls or numbers and we always talk about, oh, it's only 4%, right? But if you do the math and you say, that's still 4,000 people. You know, that's a lot of people right there. Right. But on the numbers, it would like it would just sound like, oh, that's just 4%. Like, why, why do we even worry about that? Yeah. And I think it's great because we're living, I mean, the American Constitution or like the whole American system is also all about having or protecting individual rights. So you don't just follow the greater will. You don't just follow the greater good. You you help individuals and I think that is something the Innocence Project is doing. You mentioned DNA testing a little bit. How important is that thing for your organization? In our particular cases, so we freed 30 people in our 20 years of existence Mm -hmm. and in our in our situation actually the of the 30 people I think there's only six of the 30 that we've used DNA testing to actually prove their innocence Mm -hmm. but I think what DNA has done is actually it's it's done way more than just um, those six cases. What it's done is proven to everyone conclusively mm-hmm. that our system makes mistakes. So prior to DNA testing, there you wouldn't you wouldn't often hear about wrongful convictions and nobody really ever wanted to believe it. So if somebody went to trial and a and a jury convicted them, the assumption was that there's no way that this jury could ever make a mistake. Once we started seeing the DNA cases come forward, a lot of these other cases, even non-DNA cases, started to come unraveled. When did law enforcement start u- using DNA testing? Well, I mean, they were using it in OJ's case in 94. Um, I mean, officially, the first use of DNA by law enforcement happened in Europe. Yeah. And uh, it was the Colin Pitchfork case. So okay. the law enforcement was trying to figure out who committed this crime. They went out and actually asked all males in this town to submit DNA uh, to be checked against the DNA that they had pulled. Because that's obviously a revolutionary approach to whole, the right. whole law enforcement thing. Mm-hmm. And I can probably imagine that there's been so many, so many cases where people got imprisoned falsely just because of emotional emotion reactions or emotion de- emotional decisions and all that stuff. And since DNA obviously is implied, we can say 
in a very accurate form, yeah, he's innocent or not. But still, we're looking at the numbers and it's still a lot of people that are in prison, you know, like for no reason, right? And uh, let's talk a little bit about the day-to-day work you do at the Innocent Project. Like, what are your day-to-day tasks? Sure. Um, So in our office alone, we get somewhere around 1,500 to 2,000 requests for assistance, new requests for assistance every year. Mm -hmm. And so... And that's coming from families or from friends, family, or is that actually coming from the person inside of the prison? It's most of the time it's coming from the incarcerated individual. Okay. But uh, on occasion it does come from family members. Um, Sometimes we get get some applications from attorneys saying, hey, I represented this individual. I think they're innocent. Um, Less frequently it it will come from a police officer or a prosecutor even might reach out and say, hey, I'm not so sure about this case. Okay. Can your organization take a look at it and tell me if I may have made a mistake? a mistake. So um, about 1,500 to 2,000. Um, we have a team of students, 12, 12 to 15 students that are clinic students. They are in our clinic. They're assigned 10 cases to investigate. Um, those 10 cases have already been somewhat vetted, and we think, oh, there might be something here to this case that uh, at least warrants further investigation. Mm-hmm. And so those students are tasked with going out into the community, tracking down witnesses, going to the prison, um, analyzing all of the forensic science that is used in the case, and trying to determine two things. Number one, is the person innocent? And number two, can we prove it? Mm -hmm. And if they come, if if they can answer those two questions, they will work with a super their supervising attorney to try to try to prove it and and put it into a. legal document, file it in court, and hopefully get them out of prison. So um, so my day-to-day job is supervising several of the clinic students, as well as overseeing all of the budgets and grants in, in our office that kind of um, keep the engine running. Maybe to make it a little bit more relatable for the people, do you have one specific example which kind of like mirrors the work of the Innocent Project? So can you illustrate your work using an incarcerated person maybe um, and who you guys helped getting out of jail. Sure. So uh, this go this will go all the way back to 2003. We got an application from an individual named Horace Roberts. Mm-hmm. Um, he was convicted of a, a murder in uh, that occurred in April of 1998. He uh, he applied for assistance and said, look, I'm innocent. And so our, our staff got uh, started to take a look at the case. And, uh, you know, the facts... The facts were that um, Horace was uh, having an affair. He was cheating on his wife, and it was with this woman, Terry Cheek. Terry ends up uh, strangled and uh, murdered. She's left on the side of the of the 15 freeway in Riverside County, and uh, and Horace was uh, was as I had said, he's having this affair with her. Uh, so the police ask, you know, he's he's interviewed shortly thereafter uh, when after she's discovered and uh, and he ends up lying about the affair says that uh, you know uh, he he lies about it says that he's he tells us you know today that he's lying about it because uh, he's afraid that if he admits to it that he could lose his job he wasn't allowed to have interactions or other pressure pressure from outside made him right so he lies about the the affair Um, his truck is about a mile from where her body is discovered at this lake Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a troubling fact. Mm. And there's a watch found about three feet from the body that um, he at first says it's not his watch. And then later he um, 
you know, they say, oh, well, we know it's your watch. It fits your wrist. It was sized to your wrist. It was, mm. It's got to be your watch. says, all right, fine. If it's my watch, I don't know how you would have got my watch, and I don't know how it got there, but right. I didn't do this. But everything looked like he did it. Right? It certainly did. And, um, and so, you know, what, what didn't really make sense to us and why we started looking into the case is, so the, the truck is tagged by the California Highway Patrol at 11.26 p.m., Right. right. Just, uh, you know, right, right at. And and um, and she had left her home that she shared. This, this is the victim. She mm. had she had li- she was living in Riverside at a house with her husband that she was having an affair. Right. With, you know, yeah. uh, cheating on her husband. Um, she was at that house. She left somewhere around 10 or 1030. It would have taken her 20 or 30 minutes to get to the place where the truck was located. And so that put the truck there at around, we would say, let's say 1030 at the earliest, but probably closer to 11, given Mm -hmm. what the husband said when she left the house. And so for, and then so if Horace was there, let's say that Horace, they worked together. So if Horace actually was with her and picked her up at at the Riverside house and when they were driving to work, then the question would be, why would Horace commit this murder and then somehow end up 26 miles south of where the truck is making calls to his work, asking for somebody from his work to come pick him up? You have an hour to go from an hour to go 26 miles and you leave your truck at the scene. Right. If he actually was driving the truck, why not get in the truck and drive away yeah. if you did the murder? Yeah. So that's what we looked at and said, eh, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Like you would just take the truck. Maybe you maybe you do it. But you'd get in the truck and you drive away. Let me interrupt you here real quick. Um, Because something that is really interesting, obviously what you guys are looking at is a really small detail. If the odds are against that guy, everything looks, at first glance, everything looks like that he did it. It's almost, the case is almost done, right? Um, Do other attorneys actually start looking at the little details? Or is it for them, all right, this is just another case in our books. We got him. Um, But... Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Basically, they they stopped looking at all the small details because everything looked, you know, everything looked that he did it at first glance. But yeah. if you would put in a lot of more work, you would actually might see that it's the other way around, or it's not the case. I I think in in this particular case, a number of a number of people had actually wondered the same thing. Mm. Why would you leave okay. your truck there? So the yeah. prosecution didn't have an answer to that. Right. And that was one of their, their big issues with when they were trying the case is like, how do, we, how do we explain how we got 26 miles south and why would he have left his truck at the scene? It doesn't really make any sense. Um, the defense, same thing. That was something that they always were trying to figure out is why would you, why would you have done that? Like you could have covered your tracks and gotten out of there and right. not been connected to the crime whatsoever. Right. And so I don't know, you know, I think most of the time what happens after the, the appeals process ends, once a person's convicted, they can, they get an automatic appeal. Mm-hmm. And once that, that ends, there's hardly, and there's hardly nobody looking at these cases. I mean, it's really, we're kind of the end of the road. So if we're not looking at it, nobody's looking at it. Right. So by the time we get the case, this is it. So um, we we try to give it. This like is your a, last chance. Yeah, yeah, this is his last chance, and it's kind of we're the last check on the system, and so uh, so we dive into the case, and one of the first things that we were able to uncover were uh, in the family in the family court records, we uh, dug up all sorts of information about the divorce that the victim was had had filed for from her husband. And so she filed for divorce in December of 1997. This affair between Horace and Terry Cheek started in August or July of 1997. So they had been having an affair for a few months. 
And then December rolls around and Terry, the victim, files for divorce from her husband, Googie Sr. And she moves out. She moves into a Temecula apartment with uh, Horace. They're living, you know, where actually where Horace is, is actually found. They on quite the seemed the happy, you could say that. I would say that. Okay. And so that's that's going swimmingly for them. And Terry's daughters move in with, right. with Horace. Mm-hmm. And so um, once she files for divorce, she gets some advice, whether it's from a lawyer or somebody uh, somebody that she, she knew. Uh, they tell her that in order to stake a claim in the house, the Riverside house that her and her estranged husband uh, have together, she needs to live in it. Oh. So she leaves in February of 98 and moves back to the River, Riverside house and uh, apparently, allegedly, just to stake a claim in the house. Now, these these filings continue all the way up to a week before she ends up getting murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were there were physical threats between the two of them. There was breaking of glass. There were I mean there was it was a contentious divorce. They were fighting over custody of the kids. They were fighting for for the house, uh, and none of that really came out in any of the three trials that that Horace was going through. So now we had some some additional motive for the husband to have committed this right, crime. Right. And so it kind of piqued our interest even more. Mm-hmm. And so we said, oh, okay, well, why don't we do some DNA testing? Mm-hmm. And so in 2007, we filed in court and asked f- to be able to test several pieces of evidence. First, primarily the watch that's found at the scene. Uh, we wanted to test it and see if it in, if it had Horace's DNA on it. If it didn't, whose DNA was on it? Because her body was was found in a kind of in a remote location. There's a bunch of like trash laying around. There's tires and various pe- like people mm-hmm. were probably just leaving bags of trash there. Right. But one key thing about the watch was that it was ticking. It was working at the time. Okay. So it probably was left rather yeah. recently, and it's only three feet from where the body is found. Yeah. Uh, so we asked for the DNA, for DNA testing on the watch. We also asked for DNA testing on the victim's fingernails. Mm-hmm. And then there was a piece of rope found close by, an orange okay. and black piece of rope. We asked for DNA on that. And the testing took four years. And it wow. was for a variety of reasons, but um, the lab director ended up passing away, and there were a bunch of issues with the lab. Oh, okay. We get the testing or the results back. Horace isn't on the watch. We don't get any DNA from, from the rope. And we get unknown male DNA, not Horace, under the fingernails. So what do you do with that? We ended up trying to figure out whose DNA it was on the watch and under the fingernails. So we obtained, surreptitiously obtained, uh, Googie Sr.'s DNA. Okay. And it wasn't him, but it was a We could tell because it was so similar that it was probably a relative. We ended up just by... Actually, accident actually um, obtaining his son's DNA, the victim's stepson, and we submitted it. And an expert came back and said, "He can't be excluded. This is his watch." And so now we've got the husband's son's DNA. We've got this these family court records, right? And we said, "All right, well, let's file in court." Right. And so we went to court. We filed, and um, we uh, the. The district attorney's office ended up doing some interviews of uh, the husband as well as the son. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we went to court and we ended up losing. We lost because of the state of the law in California in 2014. 
which was in order to reverse a conviction, you had to completely undermine the prosecution's case, and any any new evidence would have to point unerringly to innocence. And you, how long have you been working on the case? More than four years, right? At this point, we had been on it for 11 years. For 11? How frustrating is that? Frustrating. How right. frustrating is and that? And we lose ba basically because California has the toughest new evidence law in the country. And so we that was a that was a big blow. Um, you know, we obviously at this point believe that Horace has nothing to do with this. We got the stepson's DNA on the watch. Right. We've got this contentious divorce that's going on. And what happened to? And so we had to plow forward. And so we did two things. Right. First, we went to the legislature and said we need to change the law. Mm -hmm. And so in 2016, January of 2016 the new evidence law gets updated sweet and it makes it easier now mm -hmm. we have to any new evidence all you have to do is um, if you can show a reasonable probability of a different outcome then a court will reverse so if a jury would have known if even one juror knew that this stepson's dna is on the watch and it's not horace's watch yeah would it have made a difference that's the new standard uh, but in the meantime while we're also changing the law i asked for additional dna testing okay and this time we asked for not only to have the fingernails done, but have whatever profile is under the fingernails uploaded into our national database. I asked for her genes to be tested. Right. I asked for her shoes to be tested, Every her socks. Detail, yeah. There was a quarter found next to her body. We asked for that to be tested. Um, literally everything. Retests on the rope. Um, what, one thing that we noticed when we were looking at this case was that she didn't have any scuffs, any dirt on her shoes, no scuff marks on her shoe. I mean, she was clean. Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, it meant to us that she wasn't dragged to this location. She was mm -hmm. likely carried. And so we're looking under under her. She had she had no shirt. Her shirt had was not there. Her bra was pulled up. So we tested on the bra, uh, figuring that, you know, whoever's carrying her under the arms. And has to be strong as well. Has to be strong. Yeah. Um, you know, she's five foot seven. She was five seven, 160, 170 pounds. There's no way another, no, another one woman. person. One person's not going to be able to probably carry this person without dragging them. So right. it's probably a two person job minimum. And uh, so, yeah. uh, and so we're thinking, test the bottom of the shoes, the back of the jeans, and let's see what we come up with. And so we get the testing is granted in 2017. And then in early 2018, so in February of, of last year, uh, we get results from the court or from the lab and the lab comes back and they get a full profile from the left hand they get a full profile from the right hand fingernails the they get they actually find an apparent blood stain on her jeans so they end up testing the the blood stain and the right hand fingernails and the blood stain on the jeans are consistent it's the same person and um, and they upload both both profiles both complete profiles into our database and they get a hit and so they double check it, and sure enough, it's a hit. And then a month later, they come back to me with a name, and it's this guy named Joaquin Leal. And so that meant nothing to me. Right. I had never heard that Complete name in my stranger. life. Total stranger. Right. Uh, I threw his name into Google. <laughs> I, I saw nothing. Uh, I threw his name into Facebook, and I saw an eerie connection. He was friends with none, none other than the husband of the victim. And so uh, I contacted the district attorney's office mm. and said, hey, I don't know if you saw the results that came in. No, they hadn't. They didn't see him. Uh, oh, well, can you look up this person and see if he's in your case file? Right. He's not in our case file. 
but then they came back and made a disclosure to us. Oh, he's uh, Googie Seniors. He's the the husband's nephew, so they're related by blood. And so we ask them, "Will you do a joint investigation?" Right. And they agreed to it, and it took about five months. Uh, and in September of 2018, they came back and. Uh, the elected prosecutor from the county called us and said, look, I don't have, we, we no longer have confidence in this conviction. We at least at the very minimum believe that Horace Roberts deserves a new trial. We're going to re- agree to reverse his conviction and free him. Uh, we don't know yet if, we, if he is, we're, we haven't decided yet if he's, if he's completely factually innocent of this, but at the very least he deserves a new trial. So, I mean, you said you were working on that case for 11 years. Yeah, well, at this point, by 2018, we've been working on it for 15 years. Oh, 15 years. What mm-hmm. What did Horace, what was he doing during that whole time? Was he in prison? Was he, like, protected by people? Was he watched by other people? Was he, what What did he do? Great question. During so that he, time? he was in prison the entire time. The entire the entire time, he's still in, he was still in prison. Um, he had gone up for uh, to parole hearings, asking for release, uh, probably four times, and we represented him in I think all of them actually. Mm-hmm. Um, in each and every one of the parole hearings that we attended, the husband of the victim got up and opposed and said, "Horace, you deserve to never get out of prison. You took my wife from me." You deserve to stay here. So he's playing with that emotional factor as well. And because what I'm thinking about is the huge amount of pressure on that guy during these 15 years of not knowing what's what's going on. And I think sometimes you're at a point where people telling you you're you did it. You know, you're guilty. You need to be in jail. Um, you start believing it for like yourself. Sure. That's because that's the thing. If you tell yourself you're a bad person every day, or you, even if you tell your, you, yourself you're an amazing person every morning, you start believing it, you know. And and that's kind of the same thing, right? If 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 kind of like the system, society, lots of people in your surroundings tell you you did it, you're guilty, you're suffering from that huge amount of pressure that is put on you on a daily basis, mm-hmm. like there has to be a point in your life where you just give up, right? Yeah, and I don't know. I'm not sure uh, how, you know, how he was able to hang on to hope. I know there were a couple instances. I think that's crazy. Yeah, and I think I think there's a couple instances certainly where he was, um, you know, starting to to lose hope. At, mm-hmm. at one point, his his uh, Horace's mother died while he was incarcerated, and he kind of had always hoped that he would be home before that would ever happen and get to see her again. Uh, his entire Horace's whole family. So Horace. Um, just to give a little more background on him, right. he was uh, he grew up on the East Coast. He was from South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, he moved to to uh, Southern California to actually because he was in the Marines and he was stationed at Camp Pendleton, which is just north of San Diego. Um, after he was honorably discharged from the Marines, he got a job at a place called Quest Diagnostics. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had been working there for 10 years. That's where he met this woman that he had had the affair with, the victim in this case. Right. He had never had a speeding ticket. He had never had a criminal conviction, nothing. This guy was like a perfect angel. Um, what was unfortunate for him was that he moved across the country and none of his family was here. And after oh, he got God. convicted, he took all of his savings and all of his retirement, pulled it out and gave it to his wife and his three kids and said, look, I'm very sorry. 
you know, hopefully one day I'll see you guys, but move to the East Coast where things are more affordable and you're closer to family, and maybe one day I'll see you soon. So the entire time he's in, he's not getting any visits from any family because he didn't want them to travel all the way across the country right. just for a, the chance that the, the prison— Just a 20-minute talk, right. Right, and maybe yeah. the prison would be on lockdown and he wouldn't even get to see his family. Wow. So every time we'd go to visit him, it would be, you know, me— or my coworker Alyssa, or our director Justin, or one of our students, but the list of people that visited him was just individuals from our a few office. People. And then, to be fair, I mean, you guys probably did a lot of stuff, like worked really hard. But there was probably a time where you came in with the same results. Like, look, we're stuck here. We're stuck here. We're stuck here. And it's not that he probably he pro- he probably didn't get mad at you, but like, there's still frustration probably. Up to the point where where he was like, I don't want to see that guy. You know, like he's keep on telling me the same things. Like you become so desperate in your whole situation. Like, and also one thing. So lost his family, probably lost contact to society as well. Right. Definitely. If you're you're isolated by society for more than 10 years, it's so hard to catch up again. How do you recover from that? Is it is it even possible? How do you not lose hope? And how do you recover after all that? I yeah I don't know I he somehow maintained some level of hope um, and it wasn't by any means what we were telling him because we are always when we go and have our our visits and our meetings with our clients we don't want to get them thinking like they're going home so even when we had this DNA hit uh-huh. we had the hit to this Joaquin Leal I went and told him look. I have some really good news, but I'm I'm just still cautiously optimistic. Yeah, you don't want to because I don't want him thinking he's going home to, tomorrow. Right. And so even when we had this great DNA, you go in there and you have to keep it, you know, as yeah. it, you have to be just professional as possible. Right. right. And so, um, but he somehow maintained hope the entire time. Wow. Now, as far as what happens when individuals get out, um, it, it doesn't matter whether you're innocent or guilty. It doesn't matter whether you did it or you didn't do it. If you spend 20 years behind bars, you're going to come out do you think, a different person. Do you think that these people actually have that feeling of redemption? Or do they think they just don't care? Do you think, okay, it, it doesn't really matter to me whether or not the official um, court said I'm not guilty. Do you really think they care about that? I think they do. and I, Well, I think it depends on the person. But I think what, I mean, I think in many cases what's paramount is freedom. Freedom is the thing that matters most. Mm. Uh, but in some, in certainly in some situations, there, there, you know, there's a lot of times where I've gone to parole hearings, and the parole board will say, if you just admit to to doing it, we'll let you go today. And they'll say, look, I'm innocent. I'm not going to admit to anything. And they'll go back to their cell and spend another three years before the next hearing. So I think it just depends on the person. But you know, sometimes. Um, you know, freedom is, is paramount mm. for some individuals and others. It's like maintaining that they, you know, that they didn't do it and maintaining the truth that, you know, that they're going to pursue their innocence claim forever until they're able to prove it or, or they're not. And they're just, and they end up dying in prison. So I, I and don't know. Obviously like prison is not a place where you flourish. It's a really miserable place, I guess. You're, Definitely in the United States. That's true. Uh, especially in the United States, I guess. Um, but I'm just saying like, Just the fact, like, it, it's really hitting me right now in terms of, like, okay, I have the freedom to just drive from Arizona here to San Diego to talk with you about that. and To get your coffee. To, to get my coffee, like, right. small little things, right. to, you know. And I did some research, obviously, before before the show, and I, I read other statements of people who, who've been falsely incarcerated into prison who said, like, it's the little things like seeing the sky, mm-hmm. seeing stars at night. Because, 
I wasn't even thinking about it. Well, you are locked down at, at night. You, there's no chance you go out. You, right. you don't see the stars for like 15, 20 years. Right. And all of a sudden, you get out of prison and you're overwhelmed with all the freedom. What you gonna do? Like, what, what's the first thing you're gonna do, you know? Right. Are you gonna scream? Are you gonna be happy? Are you gonna cry? Like, where to start? Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of individuals will come out and say that, um, that the world is going by really fast. Right. Michael Hanline got out after 36 years and he said he felt like he was on the front of a rocket ship going through space. Right. And we were driving through, um, you know, he went to prison, he was convicted in Ventura County. And we were driving through Ventura and he didn't recognize the place. It was like he was on the moon. And it's because it had been nearly four decades since he had seen it. And it's obviously it's so we're, different. we're living in a time where everything changes in a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Like, look, 10 years ago, no one was using the iPhone and now, one, now everybody's using the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Like 10 years ago, there wasn't even YouTube, you know, like things changing, especially like technology, um, mobility and all that stuff. Imagine being in prison for 36 years. You're coming out. You probably think you're on Mars. Right. 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 So, yeah, it's it's, oh it's definitely you walk out goodness, and yeah. you can't. It's tough to function in society. And it, and I would say sure. one of the things that, that seems to be a, a common thing among a lot of individuals that have um, – that have just been released is that they they have issues making choices. In prison, you don't really have choices to be made. You don't have a freedom of choice. No. You don't. So, like, you go to get a Dinner, toothbrush. Six p.m. Right. <laughs> but like, even going to the commissary to buy a toothbrush, it's like the red or the blue one, or maybe it's just the, there's only one. Right. Right. If you have, there's only like two types of deodorant, and so, you know, we've had our Uriah Courtney is one of our freed clients who went um, into a drugstore and was standing in the deodorant <laughs> section. Try, could, sure. was overwhelmed with the idea that he had to pick one because there are no choices. And sometimes I feel overwhelmed in Walmart. You know? so, <laughs> like same. which one should I right. should I choose? You know that one is four dollars. Right. This one is three fifty. You know, like. Right. But I can't imagine how tough. So where do they start? Do they get count, uh, counseling? Do they get help from professionals? Do they get any sorts of financial aid? And and how do you re-socialize these people back into society? That's a, that's a great question. So um, it's definitely gotten better over the years, but it's certainly still challenging. Mm-hmm. And so back in the day, you know, and I say that, I mean like eight years ago, it was yeah. uh, we reversed the conviction and the, and the system says, whoops, sorry, good luck. And they you kind of kick you out of prison and right. you're on your own. Um, California has had a compensation statute on the books since 2000. Okay. It started as like a you, once you once you prove up your wrongful conviction, you can file a claim and get ten thousand dollars for your time in. It's improved since then. We've actually changed the law like four or five times. But again, ten thousand. I mean, that's nothing. Man, that's nothing. Right. So we've changed it, and so the current status is you get $140 for every day that you're in prison. So it's about 50 grand a year. Mm. And so for Horace who spent 20 and a half years in prison for a crime he didn't do, he was eligible for just north of a million dollars for his 20 years. But the guy went in when he was 40 and a half. He was, he was like almost 41 years old. He walked out, he was 61. Yeah. So like I who, don't think they, they, they actually care about the money, right? Like it's right. I think he'd take his years back, and I think anyone would. I yeah. wouldn't. I don't know that I would take, you know, and knowing the conditions that he had to live with and the, the 
the danger that he was living every single day, the food he was eating, mm. uh, the fact that he had a huge tumor that he had to get removed oh, from his neck, his family as like well. the health care, the yeah. missing your family. Um, I'm not sure that a million dollars would no. – I don't think I'd trade a year for a million dollars Because that that, that in is those the, conditions. That is the valuable thing about the time, right? It doesn't come back. It always sounds super cheesy when the people say, oh, time's not going to come back, but it's actually true, right? right. So it's – it's super crazy, and, and I, I mean, it's it's obviously great that he gets some form of compensation, but right. but he will probably trade every day or like every year to, for that one million dollars. And you said California is an exception when it comes to compensation. Are there like other states where it's even worse? Yes. So I think at this point, there's 32 states that have compensation statutes on the books. Um, what about the others? The others just don't have any at all. So you can't no get way. compensation at all. So, in, But there are some states that are really good, and they're kind of surprising. So the, one of the best states for compensation is Texas. So they compensate better than most, which mm-hmm. is it's a, you know, it's, a, it's surprising because of how, just how conservative they are with the rest right. of everything that's right. going on in Texas. Right. So uh, for, for Texas to be leading the nation in that is really something. There's something to be said about that. But, um, you know, California is has definitely gotten better over the years, but it's still not great. I mean, a million dollars doesn't return them to whole. It doesn't give them their years back. Mm. Um, and if you, you know, if, if you live in California, a, a house doesn't a million dollars doesn't exactly. even really get you a yeah. house. So what yeah. are you to do? You can't get a job. Um, you're not you're not able to even get employed because you haven't worked in 20 years. And what's with this gap in your resume? You haven't worked since 1998. Right. right? And they're going to ask you about it. And it's also like, you need to be aware, like in every job, you know, you need to be aware of what's going on in society, at least get a little sense of it. And if you're, wow, see, I don't even have the words to say, like, what should the people do after this? Like, what should they do? How how do they get back out of all this negativity? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's crazy because we complain about stuff on a daily basis. Oh, I missed my flight or like <laughs> I failed an exam or I don't feel great today. It really puts it all in perspective. Puts it in perspective, right? Yeah. And that, that's something that I really experience every time I do the interview. So every time I have people that are working around a social cause, I always, after the interviews or like when I talk to them, I always get like more grateful for the things. It opens the perspective really. And sure. I think you probably looking at it, how, how did that whole, like working with these people, working for the Innocence Project, change your mindset in terms of your gratitude or the way you approach handle life? Uh, it's certainly changed a few things. I mean, obviously, I think I'm, I I appreciate freedom more than probably most people. Mm-hmm. Having been in all but five of the prisons in California, I see I've seen it. I've seen it all. Um, but there's other things too that it's impacted me in sort of a, a weird, if if not negative way. Um, I'm very conscientious of where I am at all times, mm-hmm. uh, and making sure that I'm tracking where I am. So I have an alibi for yeah. for you know so that I'm not falsely accused of something that I oh, didn't yeah. do. Which you know like yeah. is that a, is that an attorney thing? Or? I think that's like a <laughs> that's a California Innocence Project thing, but probably an innocence organization <laughs> thing <laughs> worldwide. You start seeing uh, these things happen to people yeah. that are just normal people that. Yeah. It shouldn't happen, and you have to. You, I mean, even though it's happening at such a, a, a small rate, you start to think like I should be protecting myself, right? So. So we talked about a little bit about the, the prisons and about the conditions. And me coming from Germany, I always try to make a little connection of the two cultures or the two things that are going on. And I, I always had the perception that, 
the American prisons, and I, of course I'm really generalizing right here, the America, American prisons are really are really bad mm-hmm. compared to other prison in Western civilized countries. Would you agree to yes. that, or or is it just me generalizing? No, I would say that's that's largely true. Um, we we just, um, you know, it's they really the the goal is is punishment, and it's not about reform. Mm-hmm. It's not rehabilitation. It's just it's purely punishment. Um, and I and I think that that is the wrong approach. I think that yeah, the course. best approach is to try to reform to make people able to rejoin society, to be productive yeah, of members of society, right. to to help um, you know do their part in our economy, and to you know work a job and and raise a family and yeah. do what they need to do to rejoin. And, and that's actually how it, how it works in Germany. Like I'm not too familiar with the court or like with the prison system over there. I mean, luckily I, I never got <laughs> I never got involved in all that stuff, you know. Um, or at least I didn't get caught so far. So. Um, but I'm just saying, like, there's a possibility to get an education inside of the prison to, um, you know, like, choose a career path, get experience within a certain, um, like, field of expertise. Like, you can get work there. And it, it every everybody tries to help you to get back into society. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't say that's the case here in America? They do have programming. Um, but the programming is, it's not so much about uh, getting folks reacclimated back into society and helping right. them find work. Um, you know, it's, it's much more about supporting the institution. So, for example, there's a bread factory at one of the prisons that makes all the bread for all the prisons. Right. So that's just a cost savings thing. They're just saving right. on labor costs yeah. because they're having all the, all of, all the incarcerated folks. It, hey, we're giving them work, we're rehabilitating them, right. but in the end it's just about the money again. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's not a thing about, like, okay, are any of them getting hired at bread factories when they get out? I, I don't think so. I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. Right. So um, there are, you know, some, they've, they stripped away almost all of the programming as, as cost cutting was was happening in the, in the mid-2000s, mm. and some of the programming has come back, but I mean, largely, most of the, like, the higher education, I would think that higher education would be a goal of... Right. Of, I mean, of, it should be somehow implemented. Right. right. And, it's, and that's just not the case. Most of it is correspondence courses, so people writing to community colleges or whatever, and doing courses by writing in to, and, and getting, getting their degrees that way. So, whether or not people are into prison uh, falsely or, um, uh, you know, because they actually committed a crime. Right. What do you say? It's probably really difficult for them to get a job after. Yes. And why is that the case? Is it because we as a society, we still think that these people are evil and they they will not change? Um, it's just the way they are. Or is it just or is it a, is it a problem of the system where you would say, all right, it's just the chances are just so low that they're going to get a job? Um, it's definitely it's definitely that we are judging them based on their past criminal conduct. Okay. Um, a lot, some of the states, like California in particular and some others, have moved towards a thing that it's called ban the box, which is uh, where you used to say, have you, been, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And so for government jobs, we 
did away with that. And now you can't ask that question in the determining factor right. when you're trying to decide who to interview. But once you get to the point where you're actually getting ready to hire somebody, then at that point you can run a background check. Right. In and I think I, I think I learned that in my business law class. Right. <laughs> so that's a big throwback. Right yeah. And that's and that's an interesting thing because you don't yeah. want to just look at a pile of, pay, of applicants right. and throw out all the people that may be qualified, but they committed a burglary 20 years ago. Right. Right. And you want to keep them in there because we want to, we're trying to get them reacclimated into society. And one of the best ways to do that is to get them working again. Well, so right now I'm, I'm going to hit you with a controversial statement again. And it's basically, you know, like walking this fine path between, all right, he just messed up. People make mistakes or he messed up big time. Like he shouldn't be back in society. So do you think like, for example, murders and rapists, should they even get a chance to be back in society? Definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah. think I think so too, man. I think so too. I don't I don't think we should be judging people they're judging them on their whole lives for the worst thing that they've ever done in one moment. Right. So you would say that basically every human being deserves a second chance? Definitely. Yeah. And I, and and I think that's this is really important because humans mess up stuff. Mm -hmm. We are all really emotional creatures. And, and, and so I, I definitely see your point. One thing that before the interview that kind of like caught my attention, because you hear all that in the news, like racial bigotry, um, racial profiling when it comes to law, law enforcement. So do you find racial bigotry and profiling to be a common theme in your line of work? Uh, yes, I would say so. And I would say that there's, um, you know, I'd say it's definitely worse in some places than it is in other places. And I'm not trying to open, like, the box of the Pandora saying, like, oh, this is just, like, everybody's just a racist, blah, 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 all this stuff kind of happened. But I, I, I just need to ask that question because it's sure. obviously important, right? I mean, if you look at the more than 2,500 wrongful convictions that have happened in this country, the, the vast majority of them are minorities. Right. And and so there's something to be said there that um, yeah. the people that were wrongfully of convicting course. are minorities by and large. Um, but it does happen to everybody. It just happens at a greater scale uh -huh. to those that are minorities. And I, I do think that it's ingrained in our criminal justice system all the way. It, you know, it's 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 a part of our system that we still haven't rooted out, and I don't think mm. that we're going to root out anytime soon. So you would agree with the statement that if you were white in this country, you experience some kind of privilege when it comes to law enforcement and the way people look at your cases and, and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. So it's it's not only race, but would you also say it's, it's, it's the money? I would say that, yes. Yeah, I, I think it... I think it flows through every aspect of, of American society. Right, right. And and we see that. I mean, there's been, again, like a lot of cases where you could see police brutality towards minorities and all that kind of stuff. And again, there's been two, I think the Innocent Project, besides um, helping people that are innocent and besides doing all this great work, I think what you guys achieved was you guys raised two questions. Um, within the American society. And first of all is, how good is our law enforcement system? And the second thing is, do we need a death penalty, right? Because right. what happens to people that are accused um, 
and they're sentenced to death, right? And then in the end, you find out, oh, they they were actually falsely uh, falsely um, incarcerated, you know. And and you know, you can't just give them a million dollars, you know. They're dead. Like they're, they're, right. nothing happens to them. And I right. think like in America, again, it's the only country that is living according to Western civilized standards, right? Where there's still a death penalty. Definitely, and it's yeah. That's I think that's the thing that that is just so shocking to to us or to me is right. that um, that even though we've had 166 people in this country walk off death row having been fully exonerated, 166 people, lives saved, that were queued up, ready to be executed, and yet we're still playing this game. We're yeah. playing this game. Like, why are we still employing uh, the How many penalty? examples do we need right. to actually make a change? But Exactly. It is implemented in, in, in the society's brain, right? The people still think, a lot of people still in America think it's the way to go, right? So how would you, I mean, just telling them about these cases, do you think that would actually make a change pr- promoting these ideas? Hey, look, look, guys, there's so many people that have been in this situation. This happened to them. Why do we still do the death penalty? Why is it still? Well, I think it's that. But I think it's also a number of other things. The fact that um, it's far more expensive to employ the death penalty than it is to have life without parole. And a lot of people don't understand that. The way that we have the system set up is the way that we should in order to try and protect people from being wrongfully executed. Um, It's expensive, and it's expensive on all fronts. You have the best judges, the best prosecutors, the best police officers, the best defense attorneys. You've got the best habeas lawyers that are representing these people all the way through to their execution. So naturally, this is going to be an expensive experiment. And what ends up happening is it's – it, a minimum of 10 times more expensive just to try to carry out a death sentence. Not only that, it also requires that we continue to drag the victims, the victims next of kin, through this process. Right. If, we just, if we just convict them and put them in life without parole, then you turn the key and you throw it away. They never get out. Fine. Whatever. Unless evidence of innocence shows up mm. and then we go back and we re- revisit it if we execute them we can't do that obviously and and that's the thing that i was talking about earlier you execute the person basically the case is done of course you can go mm-hmm. back yeah. and like prove people wrong or redeem right. other people but what you're actually going to change is just really really small compared to the what the actual outcome was right right and and i think that's a big big thing but like also one huge misconception i think of the people is that having someone in prison is more expensive than actually killing the person right because i hear that argument a lot when i when i try to argue against the death penalty the the people say well it's a money thing it's it also has to do something with money this person spends 20 30 years in in prison why would me why would i as a taxpayer come up with all the money for him. So I think it's a huge misconception. Definitely. Yeah. And then it's it's applied, um, you know, it's it's not applied to the same to the same level on, on each class of people. Right. So in other words, you are much more likely to be charged with with murder and the prosecution goes for the death penalty if you are a minority and you kill a white female victim. Mm-hmm. That's been that's statistically that's how it is. Whereas, think about the converse. That's insane. If you are, usually what we see in, in a lot of the, the cases are 
you know, if it's a gang on gang situation, mm-hmm. like let's say an African American gang and a Hispanic gang mm-hmm. go and and one of them goes and executes someone mm-hmm. and it's broad daylight and it's like a really gruesome murder, mm-hmm. they're not going to seek the death penalty. It's just going to be a twenty five to life first degree murder case, and you know maybe they get life without parole, but they're not going to pursue the death penalty. They pursue it in situation. It's based on race. And that's that's something that we should all be troubled with, too. Right. So the race game is played not just on the streets when you're getting pulled over for a speeding right. ticket, but all the way through to the end when we're trying to decide who are the people that deserve to die and who the who are those that don't. And it's not just who are the, who is the defendant, but it also matters who's the victim. Uh, two things I would, I'd respond to that. First of all, I don't think any person has the right to choose about someone else's life. That is one thing that I'd like to add. And then... On another note is when it comes to racial profiling in our law enforcement system. Why do you think this is still the case? Um, where does it start? Does it start within the education? Do you think like the education system is doing something wrong that we're still teaching about old cases that it's not like when you study all this stuff, you know, like should there be like a class where people learn about more? Hey, this is what's going on. We're still doing really bad or really poorly in this sense. Well, I mean, to start, it's only been 55 years since we right. we passed the Civil Rights Act, okay. and and so that's 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 nothing. That's compared, nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so it, I I think it's we're, we're only talking about you know mm. a small a finite amount of time that that's passed since we decided that we shouldn't have uh, segregated schools, right. for example. And we haven't quite overcome that. Like if you go community to community, it's still right. there's still a lack of diversity as mm. you as you move between different parts of, of our country. Not only race, but also like gender. Gender, um, everything. Right. And so yeah. um, I, I think in, in less than until we get to that point where there's a lot more diversity across all fields of, of our society, mm. you're going to continue to see this. It's, it's more about... Um, yeah, but where do you start? You, you see what I'm trying to say. Sure. Like, where do you start raising awareness of the problem? Yeah. And I, yeah, I think it's, it's got to, there's definitely has to be some sort of educational piece to it. Mm. But it, so much of it, too, is just an exposure thing mm-hmm. where, you know, if you're exposed, if you're living, if you're coming up in, a, in an area that has some, you know, people with diverse backgrounds, I think you're much more likely to um, be a person that's accepting of, of all people right. as opposed to, you know, coming up in with with all people of the same particular class or race. Um, it's it's going to be much more difficult for you to ever see beyond what you know. And it's mostly, and that's the funny thing, it mostly has something to do with knowledge and getting to know diversity and actually experience diversity. And that's basically, it's it's always funny to me where you see like in the more ur- urban areas where there's just a broader variety of diversity. It's just implemented in our day-to-day lives, you know, like you living next to people with other races and like genders and stuff like that. And the people are more likely to be open about it. And then you go into the more like rural areas where the people actually just like living together, all sharing the same values and stuff like that. And it's it's so funny to me that it's always the same. If you don't have knowledge about it, you probably reject what's coming up to you. I think that is a crazy phenomenon I, I see in, in not only the, the American, but also the German society. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that I, I always not just practice but preach is that it's so important for people to travel. Yes, of course. And yeah. see different cultures and different societies and right. the way different people live. And I don't mean just like within, 
you know, I don't mean, yeah, if you're lucky enough to be able to travel the world and visit other countries, fantastic. Yeah. But get outside your community. Right. Get down to, you know, go to Chula Vista and, and have some fantastic Mexican mm-hmm. food. Go to TJ. I mean, go into TJ and, and ha- spend the day going tasting beers and, mm-hmm. and hanging out and enjoying <laughs> the culture and go hit Rosarito yeah, and sure. have some lobster tacos. And it's, it's not only, like, doing holidays. What I've experienced, obviously, I'm coming from Germany, living in the States right now, so I can actually talk about relate to what you're saying a little bit it's also not just making holidays there um, because i figure a lot of people just go to new zealand two weeks and then they say i'm a new person i found myself like it's i'm able to you know like put my shoe myself in the shoes of others right it's also being part of society yeah i I, because a lot of what you're doing is when you're traveling your tours you're really outside of the culture but if you find a way, whether it's work, whether it's school, some other stuff, um, other ways to get involved within a society, you're more likely to learn about it. But I, I don't still don't know why the people, not, they're not open for change, I feel like, in, in a lot of places. And it's, it's shocking to see because what, what's happening right now in Germany is that basically the, the, the right scene or like really right-wing parties are gaining momentum in Germany again. And it's obviously shocking to see this in a in a country that has this particular history mm-hmm. so for us it's a it's a huge problem right now and i and i think this is still also within the american society definitely yeah yeah i mean we've seen it over the last 4 years that's that's certainly been the thing so yeah what's what is next for the innocence project well before we talk about the next i should probably yeah. recap or cap what happened with horace yeah oh yeah i'm waiting for that Okay, so... You left me with a little cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) So Horace, uh, we get this word from the district attorney that he thinks that he at least deserves a new trial. And so we go to court the following week. The court reverses the conviction. The following day, I drove up to the prison and I picked him up. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was just like the best day ever. Uh, Walking somebody out that has spent 20 years in prison that I've visited countless times at this prison and... uh, just an amazing moment. Yeah. So we get him back to uh, drive him actually all the way down, down to San Diego, put him up in an Airbnb in Ocean Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, it was going to take about a week to get his ID so that he could get on a plane and go oh, back and visit true. his family. True. So I hung out with him and would see him every morning. And then, you know, we kind of relax and hang with him. Mm. Um, the prosecutors ultimately wanted to interview him because they still weren't sure if he still had some connection to the crime despite the DNA right. evidence. And so... Ultimately, we go for this interview. They start doing a pretty hard interrogation. We walked away from it and said, no, we're not interested. Sorry. Uh, two mm-hmm. days later, they called and said, we want to we want to um, agree to a factual finding of innocence. We want to do a press conference, and we have to tell you we are going to arrest the husband and Joaquin Leal today. And so there was this total... 180 degree turn right. from two days ago interrogating to they're going to make what an address a moment, man. Or they're, yeah an yeah. arrest and they're gonna and they're but how's that for you as well you're working more than 15 years on a case you know like experience failure basically right. on a daily basis right. probably some form of disbelief as well right. um how's that for you as an attorney just an amazing moment right. probably a career moment and to have a career moment when you've only been practicing law for like seven years yeah. is 
pretty insane, you know, to be quoted in the New York Times and the Washington Post is just silly. But that's these are the so, moments that probably push you, right, on a daily definitely. basis. Because I'm I'm looking at your case, your work. You talked a little about it. It's really detail orientated. Sure. It's you not you not approach a case looking at the bigger picture. You're probably just looking at the details and then kind of like forming an opinion about it. Um, but again, like this is a huge moment for you. Sure. And yeah, it was just a, wow. just an incredible moment. We had a, a joint press conference with the prosecutors. They issued an apology to Horace. Okay, that that was basically my next question. If they yep. ever did that, That's they good. apologized, yeah. and then uh, and then you know they had they went and made the arrest that day, and uh, those two individuals are pending trial, so they're up for a trial. Their pre their preliminary hearing is uh, December eighteenth, so I'll be attending to see how that goes. Uh, but what an incredible thing to happen and. Um, I think I just look at this case as how fortunate we are that, mm. um, you know, that everything fell into place the way it did mm. and that we had to kind of stick by and continue to fight because otherwise we never would have found the truth in this case. Mm. And not only would Horace have been stuck in prison and probably would have died in prison, but mm. these two individuals would have gotten away with it. So, Where do you want to see a change in the law enforcement system? Gosh, uh, there's so many different changes I would love to see. I'd love to see them um, video record every single interview they do. Uh, and I, I don't just mean like hit record when they're ready, like mm. from beginning to end. I want to see from the moment the person walks in the door, from the moment they're actually arrested, I want to know how the, these interviews and interrogations are going. It's time to stop hiding the ball. Right. Um, I'd like to see... Um, discovery, just full discovery. So whatever the prosecution has, the defense has. There's no hiding. And we still have that in California where, um, you know, if there's like a disciplinary record of a particular officer, then I might not ever have seen that. Yeah. Um, if there's, you know, there's just, there's a lot of stuff that just kind of gets swept under the rug and I'm never told about it. And it should just be an open book. If right. you're so confident in the conviction, right. if your conviction, if you're confident in what you're doing, then show us your cards mm. and then we'll let the jury decide. And that's mm. the way I think it should be. So um, that, I think there's some other things that we can change and we've been working to change. So um, eyewitness identification procedures, the way that they've con they've been conducted have been bad in the past. Mm. And so we're working on that to try and make sure that um, eyewitness misidentifications are, are reduced so that people don't wrongfully identifying people. Right. Uh, uh, You know, looking at forensic sciences and trying to determine which ones are actually valid and which are not. Right. I mean, we've got things like bite mark evidence that was employed for two decades that mm. we know is just a junk science. Mm. Um, we have this this theory, this thing called shaken baby syndrome in the United States, which is just a largely debunked theory where we thought forever that you could shake a baby and that it might end up causing this triad of symptoms. We now know that um, that same triad can be caused by a number of things, including things like um, diseases, I think, I think I meant that when I was talking about putting pressure on the person. Yeah. Because, right, you are sitting in that small room right. about to have an interview with whoever is looking at the case. Right. You're already pressured, first of all. Mm -hmm. You're already probably feeling bad. Right. You're all. You just want to get out of there. Yeah. You, especially when you didn't do anything, man. So, right. and then two guys or whatever people walking in the room. Right. Good cop, bad cop, all this kind of stuff. Right. So I can I can see that there's so much pressure on the people that they actually be like, all right, I admit it. Yeah. Just, and that's, I'm just trying to get out here. And that's what they say. Yo, you must have done something. 
And ro- what we know now with the, right. with with the shaken baby syndrome cases is a lot of them are just um, you know kids that took short shortfalls. We now know that that same triad of symptoms. Uh, happens when a kid falls from two to three feet. So they go to the playground, they fall. They might actually appear to be fine for 12, 16, 24 hours, and then ultimately they end up expiring. And really what it, came, what it comes down to is it's the fall and the way that the kid's head hits. That's what causes later causes their death. It's nothing to do with shaking. And so we have thousands of people in prison on, on that junk science, and, um, and there's, there's problems with a lot of the sciences. But those are the things that I think we're looking forward to to hopefully having an impact on and changing and correcting and fixing going down the road. We, we talked about change, especially in our system and stuff like that. So looking at the prison and looking what's happening within the prisons, where do you want to see a change there? Do you want, do you want the prisoners to get to, to be able to pursue a, an education, to be able to rehabilitate it back into society and all that stuff? Where do you want to see a change within the actual prison? Definitely full-blown education. Um, mm. We should be, we should be, you know, every single day. There should be a variety of different options, educational options that are that are offered. Whether it's, you know, um, they want to be pipe fitters or they want to work construction jobs. Mm. Uh, training and education on anything and everything that they they would like to do that would be good fits for them. Um, you know, I I think one of the one of the things that um, that we've seen in terms of recidivism in California is the folks that are actually on the front lines of the firefighting. Those are actually, for the most part, inmates. Those are folks that are mm. incarcerated. Okay, interesting. And they are uh, they work at fire camp, and then they go out and they actually fight the fires um, and and really try to put the fires out. Right. What's crazy is that those same individuals, when they get out, aren't eligible to be hired as firefighters. I mean, and, yeah, that, and, that's ridiculous, right? And, and yeah. what the craziest thing about all of that is, they have the lowest recidivism rate of any inmates in the entire system. Mm. So here we know that these folks aren't going to go on and commit more crimes, right. and we're still preventing them from doing a job that they were allowed to do when they were in prison, right. but they're not allowed to do now that they're free individuals. It makes absolutely well, no sense. Well, that doesn't make sense at all. So. But it, like. I always think that mental health has a lot of stuff, like mental health issues has a lot of, has something to do when you don't have a purpose in life. I think it's really important to find a purpose in life. And that's why you see probably a lot of millennials or younger people being more insecure about the positions that are in because they're still trying to figure out how how life actually is. And what happens in prison, for what I can imagine, is you take away all the purpose. You take away everything that would be worth living for. And you experience this kind of life for 20 years. Everything is equal. You have no freedom. You have no purpose in life. This is just a straight up, this is just straight up leads to depression and all that stuff, right? Sure. Sure. I mean, you've, you've, you've taken away anything and everything that they've had um, because you're trying to punish them, right. which I understand. But I think... Of course, think there needs to be, like, first, we have to say that there needs to be rules established in, in, in right. every Western But I think the punishment society, right? the punishment of losing your freedom, the fact that you have to go and actually live in this place you don't want to live and mm. you can't leave, right. that in, in and of itself is the punishment. What happens while you're actually there, what actually happens while you're there is, is the stuff that should be rehabilitation. Right. The stuff that trains you or teaches you or educates you on how to be a successful member of society 
that every everything else once you get there should be about enriching you and making you a whole person so you're able to do what you need to do when you get home. What would you respond to a person who would say, "Well, I'm paying. I'm 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 being a really good citizen. I'm doing everything. I'm paying my taxes in time. I work my butt off and all that kind of stuff. Why would I pay for people that committed a crime? Why would I pay for their education in prison? Why would I pay for their possibility to work, why would I even pay for them to get back in society? Like, how would you respond to a person who would say that? If you're really interested in your tax dollars, the thing you should be most interested in is getting them out of prison, back into the economy, making money, and then paying their own taxes. Right. Because if you don't give them education, you don't give them training, you mm -hmm. don't get them reacclimated and into working a job, they're going to continue to be a person that's incarcerated, costing you forever. Mm -hmm. So why not flip it? From you paying for them mm. to them paying not just for themselves, but for somebody else. And the best way, as all of the research has shown, is to give them all the things, all the tools they need mm. to enrich themselves, get, get an education, get involved, and allow them to work on the outside. I mean, one of the things, one of the main reasons that people return to crime when they get out is why? Because they don't have funds. Why? Because they can't get a job. Why? Because they didn't have education and training. Or because we made them check a box that said that they were formally incarcerated. Right. And that's that. That's what's happening to a lot. For example, there was a law in Germany when we had this like huge wave of immigrants coming into the country. I'm, pr I'm pretty sure you heard about it. Like Germany, they took over one million immigrants from especially like Western Western countries, Arabic countries, Syria and all that stuff. And, and there was a law that these people weren't able to work for the first 12 months when they immigrated to Germany. And then what's happened, again, we talked about it. What do you expect it. them to do? You, yeah, right. <laughs> they obviously, obviously, they get into drugs. Right. Like, obviously, they start to make money. They start dealing. Obviously, they, you know, get frustrated about the decisions and are more likely to commit crime. So, again, I'm really, think, I, I really, I'm really convinced that as long as you have purpose in life, Dealing with life and, and moving on and be happy about the place that you're in is so much easier, like so much more easy for you to, to, to achieve something in life. And that's kind of the same thing. Of course, you get out of prison, but you technically didn't really get out of prison because you still have that chip on your shoulder and the people still going to judge you. It's still super hard for you to find a job. And then you're more likely to end up in that vicious cycle and just and never, never get out of it again. Right. 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 So I think that is really powerful to actually flip that whole um, perspective thing. Another topic that I always talk with my guests, it's, it might be a little bit off topic here. Um, it is at Star Stripe Stories, I'm really trying to focus on the fact that failure is not necessarily a bad thing, but like failure leads to a lot of opportunities and even chances. So I always ask my guests this question, where did you, when did you experience like maybe the biggest failure in, li in life and how were you able to grow out of this and develop out of this? I don't know if there's a, if, I don't know if I can pinpoint a biggest failure in life, but I can I certainly think. Or maybe a hardship that you had to overcome. I, would, I can certainly think in the Horace Roberts case, I, mm. there was no doubt we were ready to quit after we lost in 2014. But instead of quitting, we went and changed the law mm. and we've got additional DNA testing. We ultimately got the result that we wanted. So we did fail. And mm. we were, you know, this job has a lot of highs and a lot of lows. The highs are really high and the lows are really low. And when we lose and we think that we're not going to get somebody out that we think is innocent, it's a really low low. Um, mm. And so that was an ultimate failure. I mean, that was like a failure that we, 
sitting back and looking at it, we thought, like, this guy, this person that we believed 100% was innocent was likely never to get out of prison. Mm-hmm. So um, overcoming that was certainly what, certainly something. What motivates you to keep trying? Meeting the meeting the meeting all the clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking to them. Mm-hmm. Realizing... I mean, it it just takes one visit to a, to a prison to realize that everyone in there they're all just people, right? Um, and they're all people with families and right. you know siblings, husbands, wives, kids, uh, you know parents. And well, I think when you when you when you can put a, a face to a name and you realize oh, yeah. that this like once you actually know who they are. Um, it just causes you to work that much harder. So, yeah. It's it's funny that we sometimes make such a big deal out of each individual, but in the end, I think it's ironic to see that all the people on this planet, they pretty much care about the same values, right? They want freedom. They want opportunity. They want opportunity for their kids. Um, no one wants to be in prison, obviously. No one likes it there, I guess. So I think that is really powerful, actually, when you're saying meeting the people face to face. And uh, how do you? So basically, you. What I'm thinking: How do you deal with the fact that you are surrounded by a lot of miserable people and just a desperate vibe? How do you, how you personally deal with that? Because I can see, like, if I would be in that situation, I'd probably be, come home and be like. You know, what is this, what is life about? Like so much suffering going on, so much desperate moments I have to I have to experience on a daily basis. Like how do you still have happiness in the stuff that you're doing, right? Yeah, and that's obviously a thing that we're everybody in our, our sort of line of work is is dealing with. But I think right. it's you you have to set up a, a, a work life balance that it is meaningful to you. So if that means mm. that you're gonna sp- I spend a lot of time going to the beach mm. Um, hanging out with my kid, doing things that are outdoor athletic activities that are take your mind off of. Because um, that is probably super hard to take because you're in that case. You have an emotional connection uh, to the guy that you're working with. Um, you have a huge passion. How do you, you know, separate your work um, from life? You know, I mean, you have you, you said you have a kid, so you obviously have a responsible uh, you, you're being responsible just spending time with him and you know like helping him out with things so yeah. so how do you separate that it's really challenging right. I mean I can tell you that the the, the September 26th when we found out that Horace's uh, conviction was going to be reversed till October 2nd when we went to court and the, the court actually agreed to it until October 3rd when we went to pick him up from prison I mean I didn't sleep much yeah <laughs> I want to say I probably slept like 10 hours in the whole week where and it wasn't even good sleep. Yeah. Like it's the sleep where you go and yeah. you like basically nod off, yeah. but you're still thinking about it in your dreams. Yeah. Uh, it's it's you gotta have stuff that pulls you out of it and distracts you, and because mm. otherwise I'll just be up thinking about cases all the time, and that's not healthy. It actually makes you less productive, um, and that's True. that that makes it harder to, for you to get the people out of prison. So it's the exact opposite of what you want. Yeah. So you have to find a way to burn off the stress yeah. and. Um, and remove yourself from it because otherwise you're just not you're not doing yourself any favors I think everybody knows that that you sometimes get caught up in all your work mm-hmm. and sometimes it's good to you know separate, separate yourself sure. from the work and maybe have a, a a clear look on what you're actually doing but I think we're at the perfect 
time to wrap that interview up and mm-hmm. I just really want to say thank you sure. for, for this hour and 20 minutes I think it was really inspiring mm-hmm. thank um, you for coming and doing this I think it's what you're doing is really great not only because you're working with people and you're helping people it has a social cause around whatever you guys are doing but it also I think it also helps to make society better by raising or asking questions hey are we the stuff we're doing is it still does it still suit with uh, you know our value system our morals and or aren't we just doing really obsolete and outdated stuff so I really want to thank you for this interview sure thank you for coming to do it it's yeah great. it's really nice well also thank you guys for listening to this episode please make sure you check us out on social media you can find me there under basically any platform at Starstripe Stories and just another quick side note, if you like the episode, make sure you subscribe to Star Safe Stories and give us a rating because apparently that always helps. I don't know why. But, well, thanks again for tuning in. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Woohoo! Sweet.